Hi, I'm Carl Murphy at the Committee for Economic Development of Australia. I'm talking with leaders and thinkers from CETA member organisations to get the lowdown on what they are seeing, to hear their plans for the work ahead and to progress ideas for change. In the lowdown, we range right across sectors, across professions and right across the country, talking to smart people, experts in their field, who, like CEDA, are committed to Australia's economic and social development. We'll be hearing from a CEDA trustee with mountains of experience in social investment and in the community services sector. So welcome to Belinda Drew, Chief Executive of CEDA member organisation, the Community Services Industry Alliance. Thanks, Carl. Um, it's great to be with you. Belinda, CSIA is different to an industry representative organisation. Is it right to say it's an industry transformation organisation? Yeah, absolutely. So set up to support community service organisations to become contemporary, sustainable, uh, outcomes-focused uh, organisations with a sense of collective effort in that. Um, and our job is to you know, help them get there, to rise all boats on the tide and, um, and support them to do the best job they can do for people who need their services. Okay, so it's great and really, really timely to be talking to you. Why don't we start with kind of the state of the sector? Let's have a look at it through your eyes. What have you been seeing in the last few months? Look, I think it's a fascinating time to uh, observe community organisations uh, and I think what we're seeing in many aspects is these organisations doing uh, what they do best. You know, they're highly practical, uh, um, pragmatic organisations focused every day on solving problems for people with diverse and sometimes complex needs. And so I would observe them, you know, really coming into their own as they start to plan for the impacts of COVID-19, but adapt. I think that's, that's, that's a word that sort of uh, comes to my mind almost on a daily basis, that this sense of extraordinary adaptation that's happening so, you know, for example, uh, having to find ways to continue to provide critical counselling services, but doing that with social distancing rules in place um, and keeping uh, at the forefront of their work a sense of humanity and personal connection as they go to digital forms of that counselling. Just one example of the many, many adaptations. Um, so I, I think this is a time where these organisations are really showing what their strengths are, and that's really helpful, I think, as we kind of contemplate uh, what we might need to do beyond this and uh, and how we could use what they've learned about uh, adaptation to help us to uh, manage through recovery and beyond. So it sounds like a lot of that um, focus, the determination to help vulnerable people, the focus on delivering services kind of doesn't surprise you. But what are you seeing that has surprised you? Um, look, I think there's some really interesting uh, broader challenges going on uh, for organisations and for their representative bodies and such as uh, these sorts of um, I guess, advocacy that people have done over time around trying to fill needs in gaps in services uh, as governments have made their investments both at a state and also at a Commonwealth level. 
uh, we've seen some of that sort of demand-based advocacy fall away because, in fact, these big uh, tranches of money that are rolling out sort of solve for a whole range of those identified problems and uh, really call on organisations and on a whole range of, um, I guess, representative bodies to start thinking beyond the money piece to the sorts of solutions that might be helpful in the context that we're in and beyond. And so I think there's a whole heap of kind of behavioural change that's going on, even if people haven't identified it as such, that means we're moving much more away from problem definition and being pushed towards uh, this sort of sense of um, problem solution or, you know, defining uh, ways of solving for. And I think it's so important in the context because these great big tranches of money are not solve-alls on their own and really require the best of us to design for the things that are going to matter in helping us through and beyond the, the pandemic. So if, if the sector is already in the business of kind of trying to find new sector solutions and you talk about outcome-based um, commissioning, outcome-based focused, is it's hard to do that transformation, deal with this current um, change and service demand if you're coming up with old sector solutions. So just the injection of new resources, does that mean that we snap back, that we use those old systems with more resources? Is that what we're looking for? Well, I think the risk is that we do that and, in fact, what we want to do is take the opportunity, if we can, to think beyond that. So, um, you know, if you take the investment in domestic and family violence that's come out of the Commonwealth, of course that's welcome and absolutely necessary, was probably essential before, will continue to be an issue into the future. Uh, the, uh, I guess what we've been calling the cover of COVID, that, that opportunity within the context of, of um, COVID to pause for a moment, just a moment, and rethink how we use that money because we know there's been massive investment before, there's been multiple inquiries nationally, and yet still we struggle, uh, you know, really to meet the demand that's out there. So uh, I think to take more money and do what we did in the, in, the, in the past is just sort of reinforcing the old paradigm. And though, you know, your point is, is well taken that to respond and to innovate at the same time is a difficult thing. Uh, there's no better time for it because I think we've got partners around us, including people in government, who've never been more ready for us to come forward with different solutions. So those government relations, working with government, working with government in a different way, is that more possible because kind of everything's up for grabs? Everyone's looking for a solution? I think so. I think this is a time of real breaking and remaking. So, you know, we would observe the what, what we've been describing as the green shoots of enabling government emerge as some of the sorts of barriers, ways of working that got in the way of us just uh, finding the solution and getting on with it uh, melt away. And that's, that's not a new thing. You know, we've seen that plenty of times um, in context of other disasters, cyclones, bushfires, 
you know, people put aside the rules, hold onto each other's hands really tightly and press on towards the solution. And I guess as we see those green shoots emerging of enabling government on a much bigger scale here because this affects the whole of the world, uh, what we need to try to understand is what is it about those different ways of working together that we want to crystallise an understanding around and then make them permanent features of the way we work together in the future. Permanent features of how we work together in the future, that's pretty cool. I want to ask, just go off on, it's not really a tangent, but I mentioned your, it's the extent of your experience in, um, in social investment. What, what, what is, to what extent is what's going on now change the idea or the workings of social investment? This, I think, is just a fascinating uh, and, and uh, really mind-bending kind of space <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because, um, you know, my experience of, of working in social impact investment was that what it's about is, is filling the gaps where traditional money doesn't go, so where banks or other investors, where the capital markets won't place money uh, that's that's the role for social investment um, is is to go and fill those cracks and so that means you know you're working uh, at an individual level you know perhaps doing microfinance work uh, lending to people in a safe way to help them achieve either personal or or economic objectives with small businesses to social enterprises doing the same thing helping to expand and grow new social impact um, with community organisations to help them likewise strengthen and grow. And in all of those cases, um, you would be lending to them or investing in them because the mainstream markets wouldn't. But just, you know, recently I was um, afforded to have a conversation with a mainstream lender talking to them about like a bank, one of the big four, about the things that they're doing in the context of the COVID pandemic and they're breaking all the rules. They're doing all the things for their customers uh, that from a sort of moral and ethical point of view, you would hope that they would, including, you know, repayment holidays, interest freeze on loans, all sorts of flexible uh, things that they wouldn't normally do. And so I was observing as I was listening to this conversation that that in fact sort of displaces in a way some of the traditional role for social impact investment as we've seen it. So, so is uh, the stimulus package... Um, it is just a great big social investment. It I mean, is. A, social, yeah. The social um, sort of safety net for old terminology, the investment in social infrastructure that we're starting to see or expecting to see come through the pipeline um, of the stimulus package is essentially a social investment it by is. business, by government and by all parties. Yeah, absolutely. And it, I, it, it speaks to this sort of, I guess, you know, what I have my fingers crossed around is that uh, it speaks to a move towards an inclusive growth or an inclusive economies agenda where we see money in a much more uh, holistic way for what it can do to enable both social and economic improvement in the lives of people and communities and, and, and a move away from this false separation between those two things that over here we have social um, concerns and over here we have economic ones, um, you know, they're absolutely integrated and should be, you know, treated so. And keeping them enmeshed through this is going to be critical. Yes. 
what I'm what I'm curious, and we often talk about this just before we um, just before we turn off the podcast. Uh, what are you reading, and what's that making you think? I love your reading lists. <laughs> I've been reading a um, a book, and it's shocking and uh, and challenging in the context of what we're going through, but a book uh, called Morals of the Market. And uh, it's basically a, a thesis around the intersection between uh, neoliberalism and human rights. So right, you know, smack bang uh, to the conversation we were just having. And it's really exploring how those two things, the emergence of human rights as we know it and frameworks for thinking about that and neoliberalism are inextricably linked. And uh, and I guess, you know, the challenge in that is um, really, I think, to try to get uh, up into a helicopter view of the world that we've been in, in order to understand uh, what it was all about in ways that had become kind of unconscious to us. And I think at this point in time, as we try and think about a different future, um, having some references to why we're in the world the way we are is just really, really important. So I, I've been labouring my way through it a bit, but um, but nonetheless a great read. Excellent. Okay. Well, let's um, let's get an update when you've uh, when you've finished it. Yeah. Great. Um, it was great talking to you today. I just want to say that in the interest of disclosure, I'll let listeners know that in addition to my executive role at CEDA, I serve as a non-executive director of CSIA, and I've got to say it's a great board. Um, and you've been talking with the great CEO, Belinda Drew, today. So thanks very much, Belinda, for being a CEDA trustee and for talking with us today. All the very best for your work ahead. Thanks, Carl. My pleasure. Now, the CEDA research and reports mentioned in this podcast um, are available along with a whole lot of other stuff at cedar.com.au. We acknowledge that wherever we are talking and wherever you are listening, we are on Aboriginal land. Thanks very much. <laughs>